What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Brett Hughes works at the intersection of storytelling, sports, music, and philanthropy. He is an Ohio native who excelled in both lacrosse and football and ended up earning an athletic scholarship to play lacrosse for the University of Virginia. During his time there, he was a three-time All-American, captain, and national champion. After that, he went on to have a stellar professional career in Major League Lacrosse and co-founded Lacrosse the Nations, which is a 501c3, which unifies the lacrosse community to sustainably improve education and health and create hope and opportunity for children in poverty. In this conversation, Sean and Brett discuss their athletic careers, entrepreneurship, mentors, and Brett's most recent move to Paris, France. You're not going to want to miss this conversation. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Brett, welcome to What Got You There. How are you? Doing well. How are you, Sean? I, I am doing very well. Obviously, we, we've been chatting probably nonstop for the last 20 minutes. Uh, we're, we're very similar with our, with our synergies and what our interests are. So I think the listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation. So it's an honor to feature you and have you on, even though you're uh, Virginia Wahoo. Yeah, we can we can put our differences aside from the NCAA days, right? Yep, yep. So you're an Ohio native. I've got to ask, LeBron a few weeks ago left you guys again. Were you a basketball fan, LeBron fan at all? How how does it affect you? Huge fan. Grew up um, during the Mark Price years when they were um, probably could have won a NBA title if Michael Jordan wasn't um, one of your fellow alumnus wasn't on the other side of the. Um, conference. So huge Cavaliers fan and always bummed um, when someone like that leaves, not only your team, but you know, the state, but I mean, I left, (laughs) that's kind of, it's kind of what I tell everyone when he went to Miami and and, uh, now LA, he's got reasons to do what he's doing. And he, you know, brought us a championship and um, us, I wasn't on the team but brought the state of Ohio <laughs> a championship. And um, it's really hard to uh, knock the guy for anything. He's pretty much aces. Yeah, no, that's that's certainly true. And I'm, I'm thinking about if I'm your family and, and they want to describe the, the 10 to 13-year-old Brett Hughes, what's the sentence they're going to say about you? Oh, man, 10 to 13. I'm trying to like pinpoint. That is late elementary school, yep. uh, early middle school. I was rambunctious. I was, um, it was a weird time in my life. Uh, my parents were going through, um, divorce for, um, another round of divorce, um, trying to find the right people. So I was a little bit left to my own devices, um, not without parenting, but just 
I was trusted a lot. So I think they knew I was trustworthy even at a young age. Uh, but I was, I was a handful too. I was a handful in school. Um, and, uh, I think they would say that I was really, you know, a caring kid, but certainly a handful for everyone involved. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, w- I was talking to a few historians and it turns out you could go down as the greatest pop Warner football player of all time. Now, is this true? <laughs> Yes. Uh, without a doubt. <laughs> I think that, uh, I think I may have peaked in fourth grade. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think that's the case because you went on to continue to dominate in Ohio, uh, both football and lacrosse, a two sport athlete. So you had a lot of opportunities to play college football, correct? I did. Um, I'm always a little reticent to say that because I understand how hard it is on the other hand to do that, but I don't, you know, I never doubted my ability and I never looked at lacrosse or football as I have a better chance to, um, do one or the other. I just picked the one that I actually wanted to do. I think if I would have focused on football, that was, that sport came much more natural to me than even lacrosse. Um, so I think it could have done, I think it could have done the same things I was doing all along. (laughs) I mean, it's what I had to put on 30 pounds to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I mean, it's interesting to hear that football came more natural to you, but you ended up going on to to play lacrosse at the University of Virginia. So if football came more natural, what was it about lacrosse that really drew you to that sport and made you end up playing in college? It was exciting. Um, I, I loved the addition of the lacrosse stick. I thought that was really, really fun. I loved that. Uh, I had a similar thing with, hoops growing up that I love that I could entertain myself with it. Um, with a football, you kind of needed someone else, you know, you needed someone to pass and catch with, or, um, it's really all you can do, right? <laughs> I don't, you're not running routes without someone throwing you the ball or, uh, it's a lot of weightlifting, but as a kid, when, um, I had a lacrosse stick and a, and a, uh, basketball, I would, I would spend a lot of time just shooting hoops. That was kind of my, routine in elementary school was, um, come home, mow the lawn. If it needed to be mowed, do the dishes every day that needed to be done. Uh, my parents worked, uh, late. So I would come home, do my chores as quickly as possible then drop my bag with homework in it usually, <laughs> and then run back over to the playground. And I would just shoot hoops or throw the ball against the wall or, you know, get into trouble with some other, the kids who were in like latchkey programs or after school programs that I wasn't involved in, but kind of was just around because we all were on the same playground. So, um, I loved that part of lacrosse. I love that I could just go out and entertain myself for hours with it and, and, and see results when I started, um, you know, throwing with my offhand or, you know, shooting the ball when we, when I found a cage finally in upper Arlington, um, when the high school put one over there, I could just shoot all day. Um, and I w- there was a lot of running involved too, because back then there wasn't a thing like a bucket of balls <laughs> that didn't exist. <laughs> I had, I had to order a lacrosse ball from Allman, which was like the OG, <laughs> uh, lacrosse store. And I have no idea whatever happened to it, but you would get a ball or two or three or four or five, um, and so I think I had like six balls. So if I missed a shot or two, I had to go chase them. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
So I always remember that uh, when I'm when I'm helping out younger guys now, and we have a bag full of forty balls and and a backup net. That this is this is a lot better. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like you and I were very similar at that age. It's funny you mentioned cutting the grass, and I used to piss my parents off because we had a a decently yard large yard. So I used to go out and just cut my own lacrosse field and leave the rest of the grass to grow, which <laughs> which obviously never made them very happy. But I, yeah. I want to know you you mentioned your time on the basketball court out there playing lacrosse. What's the narrative? like in your head at that time? Are you picturing yourself as a superstar of the sport? Or, I mean, do you even remember what it was like at the time? Lacrosse to me, the, the, um, I remember thinking like, I went to a, I went to a college game one time and it was maybe Nazareth versus someone and thinking that is so amazing because where we were, uh, Ohio state wasn't great yet. Um, I would go down there and see a game every once in a while, but it really wasn't good lacrosse back then, or it wasn't um, exciting. Um, and that was probably just perception more than reality. But what was really, really big was our high school team was excellent. And my best friend's older brother was um, an excellent lacrosse player on that. And I, I, I found so much excitement in not thinking I was going to be an NCAA star or whatever, but that I just wanted to be the best lacrosse player that my high school had ever seen. Or, and at that time I wanted to be the best football, basketball and lacrosse player that, um, upper Arlington had ever seen. You must've come pretty close to that, didn't you? Um, intramural basketball. I was pretty impressive, (laughs) 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 but I think, uh, I think last year, my high school, I ended up having to drop a sport. Um, I still regret that, uh, to some degree, although I think it probably helped, um, when I was thinking about playing college football, having an off season to kind of heal and, and, and prep, uh, versus going from one sport to another, to another. Um, although Jim Brown and some pretty amazing other athletes have done it. I don't think that, um, uh, I, w- I, I still wish I would have played. And as far as basket, I mean, as far as lacrosse and, um, football, I was very lucky to go to a pretty impressive, uh, school. So there would be plenty of people, um, who would have a lot of valid arguments for other people (laughs) who who came through my school on the football side. And we have some NFL guys running around and, um, you know, but I did all right. I did all right. You you did do all right. And we'll get to that in a minute, but I want to know how much was it natural talent and how much of it was work ethic for you? So it's funny. I have a hard time answering that. I mean, natural talent is certainly a um, valuable thing. I'm I'm married to a singer and I could take lessons all day long for years. And I don't think I would be as good as her providing she put the same, you know, the same effort into it. Right. Um, I do think you can, I, I can, shoot foul shots all day and do whatever. When I come across LeBron James, there is a natural, um, there is, you know, Darwinism, um, bigger, stronger, faster at some level. But I think what happened was I never really saw it as incredibly hard work. I, I loved it. I, I, I spent a lot of time playing. I spent a lot of time being coached. I really enjoyed being coached. Um, and then, I love to compete. I still love to compete. Um, that, so all that hard work 
the lonely work, the work I was doing when no one was there, it was all pretty fun. So I think that having a little bit of a propensity for the sport helps. Um, but to really make it fun, you have to love hard work. And so I think it was a healthy combination of both. I know that that's a pretty, um, standard answer, but it, it can't be anything but true. I feel like you've thought about that question before. I have because a lot of people, I was one of the, when I came to play lacrosse, I was considered pretty big. And, um, now I'm, you know, I wouldn't be small by any means, but there's a lot of big cats running around the <laughs> NCAA lacrosse field. Um, and so I, I think that lacrosse, I had to put a lot of time into and, and, um, football for me, it wasn't enough to just be good. I mean, I was playing in leagues that were Ben Roethlisberger was in, um, the same area. We didn't play their high school, but you know, to be recruited at that level, you got, you got to be able to play. And, and at some point when you get to the highest level, everyone is that right. It's not like pop Warner, um, where I was just bigger, stronger, faster. And I probably could have got away with it. The people I was comparing myself to the people that I was, um, playing catch up to in lacrosse and the people I was trying to, um, kind of best for my space in the football world, they were real athletes. Those were, there, there wasn't any, uh, there weren't any easy games in that schedule, if you will. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you get to the pinnacle of sport and you're at the university of Virginia and you end up starting uh, your first game and every game after that. What is that like at the time? How do you handle that pressure as a freshman? And then how do you continue to lead multiple years into your career there? I think that when I came on, um, well, two things happened. One, just a crazy, um, there, one of the guys who was a starter at the university of Virginia also played at my high school guy named Mark Koontz went on, I think, you know, I think it was an all American. He was a incredible player, a little bit different style, but just, just an incredible lacrosse player. And I got to come in and there was a little comfort in being next to Mark, um, knowing that someone had my back. Like, I think I was completely okay with the task. I felt like I could run around and be an athlete with any of the guys on the field. I think for me, there was a, there was a really fast learning curve because I had been waiting for this my whole life to really, that was a big reason why lacrosse was fun. I wanted to play against the best of the best. And so, um, I think that the pressure, there was so much to learn that it wasn't until after a couple of games that I realized like, oh, wow, this is a, this is a big deal to be a freshman. And, and, and while that was happening, the other, there was another starting freshman who played every game with me from, um, from A to Z a guy named Tillman Johnson, who probably people remember if they've followed the sport. Yeah. So, he could be one of the best goalies the, of all time. <laughs> I will go, I will argue with anyone that he is the best. <laughs> um, so having him right next to us and us kind of learning things and figuring out together was, um, it was a lot of fun more than anything. It wasn't the best season. Um, I kind of bookended my careers with, um, seasons that I wish we would have done better, but they provided a lot of, um, learning lessons too. So 
Um, having, you know, having some guys who were there to say like, we believe in you. And then also after a couple of games and having some success, I realized that it's all, it's all the same, right? It's you're shooting up against the best players and there's going to be the Mike Powell's running around who are a freshman that you would have never known. And there's going to be, you know, the seniors, the, um, you know, the Jeff Sonkeys of the world who are running around. And I played, I saw those guys in high school too. He played against, you know, I played against him in high school. So I kind of thought like the field's all the same. It's just the same size as it was. The goals are the same size. And after, you know, after a couple scrimmages, I kind of, I liked the challenge. It was, I was ready for it. No, I love that perspective. And you mentioned some of the people just having trust in you. Were there any coaches at that time that that really helped you through your college years? I mean, that's a, that's a unique experience for a young man, not only dealing with college pressures, moving away from your family, but then obviously starting at one of the best schools in the country. Yeah. I mean, uh, coach Sarge, Chris Colbeck, uh, who was only a coach my freshman year, um, and Tucker Radaball, who was an excellent lacrosse player. They were all great my freshman year. Um, it was great to have them. I would say that my high school lacrosse coach prepared me well. Um, there was a, my freshman football coach was one of the most important, um, coaches in my athletic career. And after working with him and, and being around him and, and the level of which he, you know, what he expected from me, I think, I, I actually think I was a pretty, I think a lot of coaches would have been okay and had a good time coaching me because, <laughs> the level at which he set for yes, sir, no, sir, dead in the eye, you know, stay until you get it right. Stay until you understand, um, not just the play, but the concept. Uh, I think I, I came with that ability to be coached. So I was pretty easy to be coached. And I've also never been someone who kind of just goes home early if I don't understand it. So if I had a question, Coach Tarzio was, you know, a great coach and, and Chris Colbeck. And I remember asking coach Colbeck a question. I always ask the offensive coaches questions because I was always trying to figure out from the other perspective, what the team was doing. So if I was watching film, I would spend a lot of time watching what our team did and what other teams did to kind of understand how can I be the biggest disruptor in their scheme versus just focusing on how I can get better. So I had a lot of coaches who were, I remember one time I asked Chris Colbeck and he, he actually said like, that's a great question. I don't know the exact answer I want to give you. And I remember him saying he called maybe a coach at Princeton he was friends with or another coach and gave me not only his perspective, but another coach from another team. And I remember thinking that was pretty cool. That's a cool memory I have about lacrosse is that they saw that I was trying to be great and somebody from one of our rival teams that we weren't playing that week. Of course <laughs> we had already maybe played Princeton or Syracuse or someone also kind of weighed in. And I thought that was a really, that was something I'll never forget. I love hearing your perspective on this because it's, it's making me smile thinking back to some of the, the coaches and men who've really influenced my life and left lasting impressions. And we'll get more into mentors and some of the people who have continued to, to help you along your path. But you end up winning the national championship your sophomore year. Uh, unfortunately, I never won one. So I just want to know, what's that like? It's, it's hard to... Um, put into words and it never does it justice. Or sometimes I think you can, uh, it sounds 
weird and I don't mean to be glib, but like it could, it, it, you can overdo it too. Um, but for me, the national title as arrogant as it sounds was, um, something I always felt like I was going to do. That was the goal from the beginning to win a championship at every level I played at every sport. Um, and it wasn't until afterward that I won and maybe had some time to reflect that I got to look back and realize how kind of fickle that whole idea was that, um, there, we had great teams and we played great teams. And not only does the best team not win on any given day there, you had to win a lot to get any sort of championship. I mean, we played in the ACC, right? The ACC championship was arguably as hard as the national title. Um, that weekend was, you know, we played, it was four of the best teams in the country every year. So it's really hard to win one of those, but that was the mindset and that was the focus. So when I, when I hit that moment, um, it was something I knew it was something I think I, I valued completely, but I also, um, there were things that were going on around that, that were, that, that put it into some sort of perspective for me. So I never got too high on it. I, I, but I always, I remember kind of thinking like, if I have a bucket list, one of the biggest ones just got checked off. Hmm. Do you continue to take that mindset into your, call it business life today? Uh, you mean kind of knowing where I'm going? Exactly. Is, it, it's a little less, I would say that, um, we'll talk about, I'm sure this name will come up later, but uh, there's a there's a perspective that a, a a friend and I'd call him for sure a mentor, although he would somehow try to dodge that um, <laughs> because he's so humble. A guy named Ken Black, um, he he's really helped me kind of change that um, thought thought pattern of having to know exactly what it is that you want and focus a little bit more on the fuzzy view of what your life at 72, if we're lucky enough to, you know, be around that long, what that looks like. And that has been a huge change in my perspective, because when I was growing up, there was lacrosse and there was football and whatever I did, I was going to win a national title at Ohio state, or I was going to win a national title at, you know, wherever I was going to go, um, which ended up being Virginia. Crazy thing is in the same year in 2003, well, it'd been 2002, Ohio State won a football title, and that was the Maurice Claret year. And then that spring, I won <laughs> mine at, at, at Virginia. So I remember thinking, like, if I would have, you know, taken that that route, I actually may have won. Who knows if the world would have totally spun differently, and I would have been lucky enough to have been on the field and blown a play. But <laughs> it was it was. A, I remember that was some weight to it, but the that was always a clear thing in my life. It was my way to kind of get into college. It was my way to get out of Ohio. Not that I was like screaming to leave, but I, I wanted to get out and I wanted to start seeing the world. And I truly, um, I truly had to kind of turn that around because, and maybe you went through this as athletes, we, we, we know what we want. And then at some point my body above everything else started to not allow me to do things at the level I was used to doing. And I started to resent that a little bit and wanted to, wanted to move on because there were other things in my life I was getting really excited about, but I don't, 
I still don't know if I have the same, well, I know I don't have the same exact vision of this is what will make me happy. And instead I kind of, I would view it more like, I know what I kind of want when I'm 72 and I, I I'm focused on as Jesse Etzler calls it like a life resume. And I want to do well and I want to do good and I want to serve as many people as I can. But the, it's almost like you're walking down a street and the street light that shows you the way doesn't really get there until you're almost underneath it. <laughs> hmm. And then you don't know where the next one is and you kind of keep going. And then pretty soon you look back and maybe you went left or maybe you went right, but you're, you kind of know where the light at the end of the tunnel is. And that has been really helpful for me. What he calls like, what does your fuzzy 72 look like? <laughs> and so when I, when I look at a opportunity, I'm in the middle of one right now, for sure. Um, when I look at an opportunity, I try to put that lens on it now. And it's been really helpful because I think a lot of athletes in particular, um, I'm sure musicians, people who do stuff at a really high level. And then at some point they, have to change focus or they want to change focus, it can be really, um, it can be a big struggle. And I was lucky enough to have people in my life who understood that it was a little different and also didn't make me feel crazy for not saying, well, I, now I know what I want. I want to go to wall street or I wanted to go do this. I want to go do this. I want to make money or I want to, I was more trying to give myself the room to, um, find out what an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial life would look like for me. So I call it, focus it on that fuzzy 72, which is certainly not as clear as I'm going to win a championship at whatever college lacrosse school I went to. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love that answer. And you mentioned getting out and seeing the world. I mean, you, you certainly did that with starting your nonprofit in lacrosse, the nations. Can you explain to the listeners what lacrosse, the nations is and even how that first came to be? Sure. So I mean, the the nutshell of it is uh, lacrosse and nations. We use kind of lacrosse. Lacrosse is the platform. You know, the field is the classroom, right? And we're 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 focused on using sport um, to teach life skills, promote education by partnering with um, local schools, and and where we started our programs uh, began in Nicaragua in a trash dump called Bachareca. Um and so we've grown and have stateside opportunities as well, but we're using um, the sport that's done so much for us um, as, a, as a way to um, be a conduit to resources for communities in need. What's been the hardest part of it? I mean, it's going into its 10th year, correct? Yes. I'm assuming there's um, a lot of trials and tribulations with, with <laughs> 10 years of a nonprofit. <laughs> there, there was, and at the beginning, some of them were certainly self-inflicted, but um, I wasn't going to spend the time to go get an MBA and, and nonprofit, uh, management or anything like that. I, I went down the co-founder, a guy named Brad Corrigan, um, had already been working down in this trash dump. I had a chance to go down with him. We both had lacrosse backgrounds, his from Middlebury, Vermont. And, um, we thought it'd be a great idea to bring lacrosse sticks and just see what happened. Lacrosse is such a unique sport because there's no real hierarchy. Neither, n nobody's played. So athletes are athletes, but you know, girls, boys, everyone's going to learn the same because they're, we're pretty sure that no one in uh, this, this community in, in Nicaragua <laughs> had any history with the sport. So we went down and they loved it and they loved us being down there and us trying to serve them and being really humble with, 
you know, how we approach their community. And from that, when your heart's broken and, and you're, and you know, you're, it's getting filled up and you know that this sport was able to do so much for a kid like me, why would that be any different just because these kids are living in a trash dump? So it was finding a problem and not knowing exactly how to solve it, but, but damned if I wasn't going to try. So we may have, um, we were, we're, we still are a very lean organization. So we didn't have a huge pot of money to figure everything out. We had instead an incredibly active board and a lot of people who put a lot of sweat equity into something that um, they're never going to get paid. The ROI will never be in, in any monetary way, right? Um, but I couldn't have done it without them. I had, I have and still have the best board I could have um, ever asked for. And it continues to grow in a really honest and authentic way. And now I think at any given time, you as an entrepreneur, and one of the best things I learned was find people who do the things that you don't do well. Um, great. And, and I was very lucky to have people come into my life who took on those roles. And ultimately, what I think cracked the code is after we kept showing up and kept showing up and kept showing up, we were really welcomed into the community. And now is our programs are monitored and run by locals. And at some level, that is the most important thing you can do. I don't, I don't care how good your Spanish is or um, how many people in the government you may know. Those are all valuable and they're all incredible things to kind of wait and figure out. But when the people who are involved start telling you what they need and that other people and the people they're looking at are the people down the street who are trying to help each other, there is value in that that can't really be replicated any other way. Do you have a story uh, from your time down there that's just ingrained in you now that just left such a lasting impression on you? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a, there's a young girl named Jacinia, and her and her family were some of the first people to ever connect with Brad, my co-founder, when he was down there um, prior to Lacrosse the Nations with, with, um, his, with, his, with his band. And um, she, you know, without getting too uh, into it um, for fear of me crying and then also just keeping some things um, between us, you know, there was this, this nine-year-old girl who just broke my heart. She had... Um, uh, nothing to live in and her family struggled with a lot of different things. Both of her sisters who are also very close have passed um, when they were teenagers from AIDS, from some of the, uh, the environments of teenage prostitution and all that. And she was, I remember just knowing that I wanted to help her and wanted to help her community. And, and I remember one time I said something like a promise you know, take care of yourself and, you know, I'll pray for you and, and all that. And she, she kind of put her head uh, hand on my head and was like, okay, Pele Loco, like I'll pray for you. Like it was one of those moments where she didn't, she didn't want my sympathy. She didn't, you know, she's nine years old and kind of like had a Yoda moment with her where she somehow let me know, like she's fine. And, and, and she is fine still to this day, 
um, thank God. And it was one of those moments where I know I had to do something. I know I wasn't going to not have this, um, this community and this country a part of my life in some way, shape, or form. And then hopefully that's what drives you, that passion to get through all the hiccups and road bumps and, um, you know, wrong turns. And now it's kind of, it's grown, but at the, at the early stages of anything, you need to have something that kind of pushes you through the dip. Wow. I mean, well, thank you for, for sharing Jesenia's story. And I'm thinking about the listeners now who, who, who want to know more about lacrosse, the nations get involved. Where can we direct them to, to find out more? Yeah. Lacrosse, the nations.org. Um, nations are plural. So lacrosse, the nations.org. Um, our, our executive director, Javier is, um, one of the most amazing guys I've ever met, um, based in DC with our communications director, uh, Brooke, who is a graduate from the university of Richmond. So they are both in DC and they are the ones who are absolute engines for this organization, as well as our, um, international staff, which are, um, incredible, um, incredible volunteers through our partners, uh, in Nicaragua and, uh, right now, currently, um, Christopher Newport University, led by Mikey Thompson and um, Gene McCabe, Hall of Fame coach for uh, Washington and Lee. They're down in Panama um, starting our first summer with our Panamanian programs. Well, I'm definitely going to have that linked up. And uh, Mikey Thompson, big, big shout out to you. We, uh, we played for a few years out in Denver together, so he's a great guy. I mean, we've only been talking about lacrosse. But you are so multidimensional that we, we need to transition away from that sport. And you did something crazy a few months ago. You and your wife, Katie, you guys moved across the world. You moved over to Paris. Uh, what inspired this? So Kate and I, um, when we met, we've always had, I think we were both a little nomadic spirits. And, and I think it started local. Neither of us grew up in families that were going to far-fung places. It's not like we grew up um, as part of like the lonely planet or Rick Steves families, <laughs> it was, we both are from Ohio, but we, I think sports, when I started seeing it take me places and for her being a musician touring at, at some age, like just going to Philadelphia or going to, um, Denver for a lacrosse camp or, um, the, I remember the first time I went to the Vail shootout, the, those things are, um, or even driving to Baltimore when I was a kid was, was this far flung place. Right. And when we met, we both had a uh, love and, and a desire to travel. And then it started to manifest after her first European tour, when we were, we came through Paris and we would just say like, wouldn't it be amazing to live here? Like we should do this sometime. I don't know what it looks like. And that was maybe nine years ago. And don't know what it looks like, don't know how we'll do it, but it just kept being a conversation that would that never really went away, right? It was not like one of those things that at some point you just grow out of. And and at some point we realized we're not we're not gonna grow out of this. We have to actually do it. <laughs> and so we kind of made a promise to each other, um, whether it was written down or not, that we were gonna go. Um, when we found the right time and then pretty soon you realize that there's, that, that's a, that's a, that time will never come if you keep waiting for the right time. 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned nine years in the making. Logistically, what's <laughs> what's the preparation like for that? Um, you kind of have to get over the idea of how far, like we've moved a little bit. We've moved from, we both obviously, I went to Ohio, to Virginia, to Los Angeles. We moved to Nashville, moved back to Los Angeles. Um, so moving is tough. I don't care if you move down the street. It's, it's a, it's, it's a hectic time. And so once you get over that and you just spend some time finding out steps. So, you know, for us, it was France. So finding out who in my network knew anything about that. And I had a friend who just moved his family to Madrid last year. Um, so I started there and he was much, uh, encouragement as anything. And then we knew someone the, in France and wrote him and said, you know, where do, where do we start if we want to fa- quote fast track it? Right. <laughs> and he said, you start where everyone else starts, go to the embassy. So then you just go to the embassy and you, you learn about what's, what's involved in getting a visa to come over for six to 12 months. And you just kind of, you over prepare and you bring too many documents and you bring, you know, too many copies of the documents just in case someone takes one or you lose one or you never want to waste an opportunity. So it's similar. It was similar to like a game. You you prepared for seven days for each little game, which was getting your visa. And then it was logistically figuring out how we're going to pack up all of our stuff and move. Um, what are we going to do with all of our um, bills or any, anything else, like how, how, how you compartmentalize it to five or six verticals. And then you realize, especially today, I can only imagine what it was like in the eighties, but the internet's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you can forward your mail, you can change things pretty quickly. You get instant feedback. So, um, it was, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of different balls to juggle, but you know, the guy who moved him, his wife and his three kids to Madrid, he's also a you know, really successful guy in the, um, finance world and with three kids and a house here that he had to rent out and getting a house there. Like we didn't really have any excuses. At some point you look at someone like that and you're like, there's a lot more moving parts they have than we have. So I don't have any more excuses. So we just, um, you know, we kind of divvied up responsibilities and just talked about it a lot, you know, and you have to talk about it a lot because otherwise there's a lot of stress to it. So you have a bottle of wine and you talk about what needs to get done and you celebrate all the little victories along the way. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sure anyone could probably list a thousand reasons why Paris would be great. Why did you guys decide on Paris? Uh, two things. One, I mean, it's Paris, right? Like, um, Audrey Hepburn on Paris is always a good idea, right? Like there's, (laughs) I, 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 Ernest Hemingway is one of my favorite authors. I've loved that. Um, I love those different generations of creatives who've come through here. And I know my wife probably even more than me um, feels really inspired by this place. But the there was a practical reason too of it's cosmopolitan enough that you can get a lot of things done. It's not necessarily off the grid, even though it's certainly not um, it's certainly not totally user-friendly, but that's what we wanted to go. We wanted to go somewhere that it was a different language and we wanted to go somewhere that we could, we still felt like we were a little in touch. Uh, we weren't going to go to the middle of Amazon or something and totally unplug. So 
this place is also right in the center of Europe. So when I go to Spain, you know, for her tour, we, we basically went all over Europe. And so we can get to England, we can get to Spain, we can get to Italy, we can go to Croatia and France in and of itself is, has so many different parts to it. So being in Paris, an iconic city that we both really, really love, um, that was a big part of it, but also having the access to all these other amazing places that we wanted to experience on the weekends. I mean, weekends here, it's, you know, friends who live in Manhattan and go down to the shore or something, or live in Manhattan and go out to Hamptons. Well, the Hamptons is Saint-Tropez or it's Barcelona or San Sebastian or Alsace or, you know, or, or it's a two hour train ride to London if we want to go there. So it is, it's remarkable. It's just something that, um, hope everyone can, who wants to, um, take a crack at because it's worth, it's really worth thinking about. You get to meet a lot of new people and you get to see that the world is really just a bunch of people trying to do the best they can. And that's a, that's a really valuable lesson to learn in a time where we have less, um, we have less patience with each other than we ever have. I hope there's some people listening that this truly does inspire and, and they go out and they knock this off their bucket list, uh, living internationally, whether it be for a couple months or a couple of years. And you must have had some expectations going into this. How has it lived up to your expectations? What's it been like thus far? Paris has been amazing. The, the, the trip over here has, um, it, it was the, we weren't completely certain that it would work in a way that we wanted to, but we also didn't have crazy expectations of like Paris bending for us. We, we came over here with the same mindset that I had when I actually, you know, went to Nicaragua, which was, we're trying to just not get in the way and try to get some of that Parisian charm, that European lifestyle, um, to rub off on us while we're still doing what we have to do. Um, it's not, we didn't view it as a vacation. So, um, I, I really value every time that, you know, my wife and I get to take a walk around the Seine river. I really value when someone comes to visit, we have friends coming, you know, right now from, uh, Nashville who are going to be spending some time here. And I really value being able to have a lunch on the other side of the, you know, the other side of the pond with people. And I also love the parts that make it a little sticky trying to figure out where, you know, tracking down mail packages today, tracking down, you know, staying up till two in the morning to take a call because LA is nine hours behind. All those things are kind of part of the experience. You know, um, you just realize how much more malleable our lives are than we think we are when we get kind of stuck in our ways. I think that's been a, I think that's been a really big um, learning point. And then I also think that because we don't have everything at our fingertips and I can't just walk down and speak and get whatever I want fluently or fluently, that's not even, I can't even speak to a third grader and, you know, have a hold a real conversation. You, it kind of forces you to live a little more simple, to be honest. Um, we, we live a pretty simple life over here. And that's something that I certainly don't want to forget when, um, we end up back in the States. 
you mentioned learning experience, and I would love to ask this question both now and then in a few years after you really get to resonate on your time there. But what have you learned most about yourself while over there and, and getting out of your comfort zone? I've learned that my instincts are correct. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned that, um, and if I, I think every couple of years you need to be reminded of that, that your, your instincts are telling you something. And a lot of the times I, I kind of view it as one of two ways. Your instincts are telling you something, um, the little lights going off in the back of your head and you either don't want to listen to it because if you listen to it, it requires you to get over a lot of fears and put a lot of work that you're not willing to put into, or you're not trusting it. And so I think that those are kind of our two, and maybe there was a little bit of that on both ends. But every time I do go, every time I let my curiosity and my instincts, and um, it's not just me, right? It's my wife. We, we had to totally agree on this. Um, then the work and the, um, the, the work that we put into it really doesn't seem like it was that hard now, looking back. And I think that's what happens when you do something you're really, um, that you feel like there is purpose in, which is for this was this, like the, the last thing we, we don't ever really talk about how hard it was. So I've, I've really learned that, um, it, just cause you want to do something doesn't mean that it'll be easy, but if you really want to do it, the work won't seem as hard, even though it is a lot of hard work keeping up with everything. So I imagine that there's going to be a lot more and truthfully, with all the touring we did in the middle of it, we had a month-long tour, we're kind of settling in again um, and starting to feel like this is home after being, you know, tr traveling for shows every night <laughs> for for a month. We're, we're, we're starting to feel Parisian again <laughs> until I say something and then I realize I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned coming back from tour for a month. What is your day like right now? Any routines? Can you even get into a routine while living overseas like that? I think it is certainly harder, um, but I'm figuring it out. I think one of the things that happens from time to time is I wake up really early, um, not really early. Um, I feel like it's really over early over here. And finish conversations with people who are not yet asleep in LA. And then you start working and all the emails and all the correspondences that happen while you are sleeping during the evenings for a lot of um, friends, family, clients, everything else. And then if you don't take a couple minutes to yourself and you don't do something, then all of a sudden America starts waking up again and you can have a 24 hour cycle. Um, I've talked to some people who have done international business and they, they, um, have said that that was a lot of their, they had similar experiences. So the rhythm is more really probably something I need to learn anyway, is really setting, um, goals and, and trying to figure out exactly how to attack a day and, and how to spend, maximize your time so that you can still have the life that you want to live and, and kind of enjoy the same freedoms that you do when you're at home working. You don't want to just be glued to your computer and, and, and then leave Paris and say, it was great. I worked from 
Paris for six months. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you do yeah. for your own quiet time? I walk a lot here. I still run a lot. Um, and I, I've actually kind of taken the idea of running and do like a little bit of a fun run. So, um, if I'm running say three to 10 miles, sometimes I'll just stop and walk. If I'm, if I'm running by, um, the Musée d'Orsay or if I, some really cool cloud cover or sunrise or sunset, um, I stop and I walk. So I, I try to do that a lot. And then, um, Kate and I, I mean, I don't think there's anything better than, um, being in a square or on the river, sharing a glass of wine and just talking, um, stuff that sometimes goes by the wayside and when we're at home and we're both kind of cranking on things, that's really it. I mean, I, I read, I listen to podcasts. I, um, I try to make time for all of that, but I would say the two kind of non-negotiables are, um, having coffee, tea, wine, um, with friends or with, you know, just my wife and I, or even sometimes, um, just walking around by myself and then trying to get in as many runs as I can. That's been a big part of my travel is putting on shoes and kind of uh, hitting the road wherever I am. I think it's a really fun way to see uh, a city and you always end up in places that aren't on anybody's um, tourist map, but also you get to kind of always see what the locals really live like. Those long walks are such a reoccurring theme on this podcast and, and getting to spend time with those loved ones. It's unbelievable what it'll do for you. It really is. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I mentioned earlier the idea of like the life resume. Um, and that, that that's a big portion of it is being really uh, cognizant of the time that we get to spend with uh, the people we love and, and I'm doing something really unique and I want to make sure that I maximize it um, without being, you know, without being just um, absent from, you know, the duties of daily life. But um, you start to realize that as I've grown older, I've, I've focused who the world thinks you should look up to versus who I think you should be looked up to is probably very, different. I'm equally as impressed, um, with people who would start a local gym or the fact that my wife's Kate Ogle and she's starting to, um, show her paintings and make those more public and people who've stepped away from something that was, um, maybe really lucrative or provided them some sort of, um, kind of validation that they were looking for and did something new. And I think, Sometimes we spend a lot of time reading what Mark Zuckerberg thinks and truth be told, like that's not someone that I look up to. I, I think that what he created is amazing, but if you gave me a million chances, that would never have been something I would want to have created. It would have just never happened. So I think when, when I look at the people that I really look up to and I value, they're kind of doing what I'm doing. You know, it's the Jesse Itzlers, it's the uh, Seth Godin's, it's the Richard Branson's, you know, those are the big names that everyone knows. And there's a ton of, you know, uh, smaller entrepreneurs and people that I think like, oh, that guy's got life. No one's got it figured out, <laughs> but that guy's got, that, that guy's onto something. And I, I kind of want to spend my time um, developing, you know, that, that a full life. 
And uh, I think you, I think you can do both. I think you can do well and do good and, and see the world and, and, and not, I think you can have your cake and eat it too. At sometimes it just might not um, look like everyone else's. So along the lines of developing that full life, you, you mentioned some of the people that most of these listeners will be familiar with. And, and when you find someone like that, I mean, what are you trying to extract from their principles, their routines? Uh, do you have a, a set thing that you try to accumulate from them or are you just cognizant of what they're doing and trying to incorporate more of that into your life? So I, th- I think it goes into two different buckets. There's people I know and there's people I don't. So, um, there's things I think you can learn from a Michael Jordan, a Tiger Woods, but if you peel back the layers of that onion, you may not want to buy all the stock, right? And so I think that there are, Tim Ferriss does a really good job of kind of taking the things that people use to hack their life and share them with us. He's not saying, hey, here's this person you should believe hundred percent what this Navy SEAL who wakes up and runs 25 miles and eats nothing, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> scorpions and, and lifts kettlebells. And, you know, like he's not saying that he's saying, here's what this guy does to help your life be better. There's people like that for sure. But then there's, you know, mentors and, and people who are a little closer that it, it starts with what kind of life are they living? And I would say right now on the, on the highest level, someone like a Jesse Etzler and someone like Richard Branson, those guys are living lives that I like. (laughs) I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to trade my life for theirs, but I certainly, I like what they're doing. I like that Richard Branson is finding a ton of time to give back. Jesse, it's all of them have this service bone and they all have this bone that isn't about there's the metric is fun working with good people and doing things that actually matter. Um, doing them different. And I don't think that what Jesse started when he started, uh, marquee jet, maybe the jet thing doesn't jack anyone up, but what about the fact that without any like MBA or crazy accolade from an institution like a Harvard, he was a rapper (laughs) in, in New York and he didn't own a jet, certainly wasn't on private plane status. And he and his buddy just figured out a way to pitch a company and get jets and create the marquee, you know, marquee jet black card and sell it to Warren Buffett. Like that type of stuff is inspiring to me. Um, so I look at those people and then I look at people like, you know, Nick Roman, my high school football coach. Um, he was a complicated guy, but he really pulled a lot of the best things out of me. And that was a lot more personal, right? There's, there's other mentors in my life too, who've done similar things. Are there any other mentors you'd like to talk about? I know you mentioned Ken Black earlier. I mean, legendary career there at Nike, anyone else? I mean, I I feel like you've been exposed to some people that, that really have touched you and could, could help the listeners just kind of see deeper into who Brett Hughes is. Well, Ken's amazing, right? I've talked to you. He's a fuzzy 72, um, (laughs) His company that he's rolling out, uh, I'm proud to say that I'm um, an ambassador for no other reason than it's the best investment I think I've made in the past, um, you know, f- five years. And his company Pivot, um, Pivot Collab is the is the um, URL. 
it's amazing. It's, it's, it's about unlocking and, and kind of redesigning your life in a way through a guy with, a, like you said, a legendary design background, but also has a GM's mind and, and also just has a great family um, and, and, and puts a high value on all that stuff. So he's someone, a guy named Jim Gorman, um, I always bring up, he was an old boss of mine, but he was on the first trip to, if you watch the first video ever about lacrosse and nations called introduction to lacrosse and nations, he was down there. Um, one of his accolades is he was, he was the first white player for Morgan state hoops back in the day. And he is incredible family man, incredibly talented, but he gave me a lot of confidence, um, kind of saying, you know, I remember his words like, Hey, Slim, you know, you can do this. You know, that was his thing. He wrote me a letter. You know, you can do this when I had doubts about something. And, um, he's one of the best people. He's one of the best interactors I've ever seen. I don't even know if that's a word, right? <laughs> like the way he interacts with people and the way he kind of gets the best out of everyone is a really remarkable thing. Um, I consider all my coaches that I spend a lot of time with mentors. Um, if you read stuff by Dom Stars, you'll see that he's incredibly deep and smart. Um, and that is something that I think he and I connected on. Um, and, you know, there, there are more, there, there are probably a lot more that I could go into. And one of the really cool things is having, um, friends that are, have this like tiny mentorship role in your life. So there are people like Yogi Roth, who I, I believe you're familiar with too. He's one of my best friends in the world, but there are times where we kind of call each other as if we're looking for mentorship. And it's a really cool place that I don't think we get to enough with our friends. I think maybe, uh, I don't think it's just a guy or a girl thing. I don't think it's just like machismo. I think it's just not wanting to be vulnerable and having people like that or John Gordon, who's an incredible author and, and, um, just a remarkable guy, um, top to bottom. And, uh, my pastor Erwin McManus is someone I consider a friend. Um, but also I've read every one of his books. I've listened to so many talks by him. And I think that, um, the way he speaks about faith is incredible. But I also believe the way he speaks about life is equally as incredible. So there's so much I've learned from him and been lucky enough to have a chance to ask him some questions or see how he interacts and see what lights him on fire, um, which everything is running through the source that a, a pastor uses to you know, at its best to get through, but also he's just an incredibly deep man. So those are some other guys that, um, are worth checking out, you know, listen to Yogi, check, uh, John Gordon out, Erwin McManus. I can't say enough about it's, it's like every time he gets a mic, he turns it into a Ted talk. (laughs) (laughs) He's, he's one of the best speakers I think I've ever seen in my life. I actually will go on record and say he and, um, he is the best speaker I've ever, I've ever seen just grab a mic. And it seems like at any given time he can, he can do it. Anytime you and I have ever communicated, I always walk away saying you're insatiably curious. And (laughs) do you feel that way about yourself? And I mean, have you always been like that? Yeah. 
I, I, I do feel that way about myself and it's, it's my superpower. Um, when did you identify I mean that, that was your superpower? I, I knew it when I was a kid, I grew up in Amish country originally. And we had, I, I, the question always follows up like, so you're Amish and <laughs> There's a lot of things about my life that would tell you no, but it's usually a <laughs> it's usually a question that comes up. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. But I grew up in that Amish country, um, Ohio, and having farms like my grandparents, and and just having space to run and motorcycles to wreck and cars to drive at way too young of an age, and and just kind of testing the world out at a young age, I think, and it not killing me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it put that in my life. So as I got older, it was, I got a bike. Yeah, we could ride down to the pool. But remember that road that no one ever goes across? Like, <laughs> what's on the other side of that road? And it's usually nothing, but it was, it was, it, it kind of kept going. And it was part of the reason I think lacrosse was interesting and different. Like, I'd seen the football route and thought, well, what, well, what, what could this look like? And I think that when I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, I started to realize, I started to realize like, I kind of want to just keep going more than a lot of people. Um, the sun going down didn't change anything for me. I was going to stay out until um, I was ready to go home when I was done playing basketball. And um, it started to become my dad will tell you that I never met a stranger. So hmm. I would be in a, I would, when, when I was really young, probably before I really remember, I would be in a grocery store and just chat up someone, ask them what they, what they're doing. And, and, you know, what, why do you do this? Or, you know, what, what do you, and I, I think I've always had that. I love learning from others. It's ironic that here I am gabbing away for over an hour, but um, I truly believe in that, that statement of, when you speak, you're just saying what you already know. And when you listen, you have a chance to learn something. Um, and that's, I think that's why I know you and I have talked about this. I'm an avid podcast. That, that is a perfect, um, that's a perfect medium for me to listen to stories and to hear people that, um, I, you know, that I love. I mean, one of them, Anthony Bourdain, I will listen over and over and over and over again to anything because I think he's was such a remarkable guy and all his flaws, which I loved because, you know, I, I identify with that too. Um, I, I, I love people like that. I think the authenticity is so remarkable and there's so much we can learn from people like that. I think a lot of people are listening to this right now and saying, wow, Brett can really conquer fear. And I, and I want to know how fear plays into all of this with your curiosity. Do you think having that insatiable curiosity has really helped you overcome some fears in life? A hundred percent. So I, I, you know, fear is something that I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't have. Um, it's something that comes up, you know, I would say daily. Um, but the idea of conquering it is, I don't know if you ever really do. I think you conquer a fear that day. It doesn't mean it's, it just go, gives up and throws in the towel. And, and, you know, most of our fears are deep seated and they, 
they want a second round with you. And I think you have to, instead of conquering it and just smothering it or pushing it away, you have to just get to know your enemy, right? And so when it comes up, you have the tools to understand where it's coming from and and then understanding that like just beyond that fear is usually clarity or joy or an incredible amount of knowledge. So that I think that's the way I look at it. So overcoming it is a daily thing for me. But I mean, fear, anxiety, all that stuff is, it's, it's not, not real, but it is made up, right? We kind of let that thing rent space in our head (laughs) and, 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 and with the right tools, I think we can, you know, you can evict it. You're dealing with fear every day. Are you actually setting out to try to handle fear and getting to situations that make you uncomfortable? Is that something you're thinking about cognizant? There's times, um, I think there's times where you kind of are looking at the thing in the corner and you wake up one day and you're like, all right, it's time to like, I got to fight that guy. Right. I got to, I got to not actually, but that, that guy in the corner, that elephant in the room, that, 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 you know, the giant in the corner, you have to slay sooner or later, or it's just going to stay, it's just going to stay there. So you have to address it. But I think what I'm talking about is I think the big things in life and, and I'd love to hear your take on this too, aren't the, I mean, you just had, uh, you just had a kid, right? Yeah. Just a week ago. So that's, there's fears with that that aren't ones that you're going to be able to slay and be done with. Like, oh, I got to be a good father. Um, I got to, I got to protect the kid. I got to make sure that he doesn't, you know, stick his finger in a light socket. Those are fears that you just, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? Am I, am I being present enough? And I think there are little things that you have to constantly just tap into because we are, it's really hard to just be present. But then I, the, the other side of that is the, the big things that you know are holding you back from something. Those are the fears that you have to get up and just say, all right, it's time to put on boxing gloves and go to, hmm. go to war and get through this. But I think what I think, I think we're overwhelmed with the, the little fear, which is, describe as anxiety for a lot of us. Cause that's really what anxiety is, right? It's, it's, it's fear at some level. And you, you probably deal with that daily, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's what a lot of it is, is you just have to get up and just go. So you mentioned uh, our new son. So yesterday my wife had to take him to the doctor, absolutely torrential downpours. Um, I had a <laughs> meeting, I couldn't go. So I'm like here, it's your first few days of this newborn. You're battling torrential rain. You got this crying baby on your arm. You're in a new doctor environment. So there's so many things. And like each one of those little tasks is a challenge and a fear she essentially had, had to get over. And, and the more of those you do, the more comfortable you are in certain situations. And then obviously it does lead to bigger fears that at that point you're more comfortable tackling. So when I hear that, I think you started off with a fear of, I've got to do this. And I'm the same way. If I have to, you know, uh, leave my wife or my wife has to leave me, we both uh, not worry about each other. We know we're going to be fine, but there, there are things there that you wish you could be there to help. So you have to leave and you have a newborn and there's a torrential downpour. So your wife is saying, I mean, I don't want to like get into the car and I don't want to slip and I have this baby and newborn and, and just that in itself is enough. And then 
it's all those things until you get to the point where you're like, well, I hope the doctor's visit goes well, right? <laughs> like you're thinking about all the little pieces leading up to it where you're like, oh man, I hope that all we get is good news. And I think we spend a lot of time giving a lot of weight to things that we can't control. And um, that's where I think my, when I, when I think about fear, I think about that is kind of looking at, well, yeah, we can worry about, there's no endless amount of things, but ultimately if the worry isn't doing anything for it, then it's probably something we need to, uh, you know, hit the mental gym with a little bit and get strong enough to, to move through. And that's why I love having these conversations because the past week, hectic, chaotic, and having this conversation with you helps refresh that for me and, and it helps me take that perspective that you just hit on. So I, I thank you for that. And I definitely appreciate that. And we'll be moving forward with that now. Um, <laughs> you kind of mentioned along the lines of the mentors and how you accumulate knowledge in a lot of the podcasts and people you listen to. What are some of the podcasts? How are you most accumulating knowledge? Are you reading a lot, studying? What's that looking like? Um, studying is a word that is tough for me because I, I could say that and anyone who knows me is going to say like, I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know if I know Brett is the, the most, uh, studious person, but I, I do read. I, I, I developed a love for reading later in life. I think when I started picking the books that I wanted to read and knowing that if I didn't like the book, I could just put it aside and find a new one that really unlocked reading for me. Um, I got to read about people's lives. I got to read, read about moments in history. And I started learning from those versus just reading someone's book list. Um, so I do read those a lot. I love while I'm over here. Um, I'm reading a little bit of like Henry Miller, kind of like the beat crew, like the Ernest Hemingway stuff. There's trying to, um, trying to enjoy the romance of that in the city where a lot of those guys were inspired um, the, you know, the lost generation and, and, and the beat crew. And so doing that, but then the podcasts are pretty, the standard ones that I'm going to all the time, other than what got you there with Sean Delaney. Um, I would say that I love Erwin McManus's mosaic cause we can't be there. So we listen, you know, life without limits with Yogi, um, the Tim Ferriss show, Akimbo uh, with Seth Godin is remarkable. Um, there's kind of James Altucher, which is a pretty massive podcast, but it's a remarkable. Many people don't know about it. He's got such an incredible style because sometimes when you get two of these icons speaking, you know, when you go to these high, high level top 10 on iTunes, you'll hear Tim Ferriss or you'll hear one of these guys and they'll say something that those two understand and James Altucher without it never misses a beat. When I start to say like, hold on, I don't understand what he means. Like I want to dig into that. He will say like, you're not allowed to just say that and he'll bring it back and, and, and really dig through it. And I like that. Um, I was just on a podcast called Brink of Midnight with John Brinkus. Um, and you know, I, I love comedy. So Bill Burr to me, is really funny. So sometimes when you're just on a, you want to just, it's just him going bananas on a microphone and he's been doing it. He's one of the first guys to really podcast and one of the first podcasts I heard about. And if you get to know his genius, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. If you take him tongue in cheek, it's 
it's not maybe as, as remarkable, but he's, he's brilliant. in the fact that he can just turn on a pot, turn on a podcast two times a week and just go to town is unbelievable to me that he can just make you, you're at least going to laugh a couple times. And, you know, as long as you don't think the humor is just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. No Kimbo by Seth Godin is absolutely incredible. I know he launched that one a few months ago and then James, Aldrich, yeah. sure, that was one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. So I've been religious with him and yeah, he he's unbelievable. He's the, the constant interrupter that's able to dissect high level stuff for everyone. So yeah, two podcasts. That's a I, good way to put it. Yeah. Two what pod- about you? Uh, honestly, you, you hit on them right there. It, it's funny too. I go on cycles so some of the ones we just mentioned, Tim Ferriss, but then I also go on times where my mind, I just can't, it can't be more input. I can't try to learn something new where I'll just put yeah. on a comedy thing. I might even do a Bill Simmons and just listen to NBA talk. Oh, um, that's cool. Yeah. So I, I probably have about 30 different ones that I'll be downloading yeah. from at any given point. And then, Hey, like this morning, uh, uh, this is a, a busy week for me. So the final 25 minutes of my workout, I usually listen to podcasts or my workout. I just had to turn on some music. I was like, my brain just needs yeah. to shut down. I was on about two hours of sleep and I was like, I just need to zone out for a little bit. But I mean, we're so fortunate. I'm huge with that. Yeah. We're I, love, so for- I love music. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great. I mean, just some of the ideas you can have while listening to some music. I mean, we're so fortunate in the time we have where if you want to learn, accumulate new knowledge, find out what happened in history, there are infinite resources right now to do that. So, oh, I mean, yeah. I feel so fortunate that we're able to do that. So it's, it's a fun time for everyone. Yeah, audiobooks are a big thing too. Sometimes I want I want to go deeper, deeper and learn something and I'll, it'll, maybe it'll be a book I started to read, but put down and I see, you know, Nick, I've read Mark Twain, but Nick Offerman is, he's he performed it. And I heard that and was like, Nick Offerman is, I could listen to that guy talk about anything, <laughs> his cadence and his voice. So I, I bought that and man, I haven't read Mark Twain in, you know, 15 years, but it was, it's awesome. And, um, things like that, Jesse Itzler, if you haven't read his book and you don't think you have time to read it, um, living with a seal and living with monks is they're both excellent reads. And then also I would say, if you're an audiobook guy, get it because you can, hear him perform it and he does it he does it in a way that you by the end of it you not only heard a really great story but you get him a little bit like you 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 kind of understand that from now on when i read anything from him or about him i can see it through this lens yeah no all the listeners right now go pull up the james Alchester podcast and uh find the one with jesse itzler and i think he might have done two with him and they're both incredible understanding his life story and what he's accomplished and we're talking about what you've accomplished brett and i want to know what you're most looking forward to uh the next coming months i think that you know i i, I took on a new uh challenge in um in the loosely well directly affiliated with sports but um I took on a new challenge from over here to um, look at the global sports market for memorabilia um, through an auction house and through the stories that are going to be told um, and the people I'm going to meet. I'm incredibly excited. I mentioned to you really quickly. That's a that's something. It's a huge opportunity and it's a huge responsibility. Um, a lot of learning goes into it and a lot of um, a, a lot of meeting and understanding the way stories from around the world. So I'm excited about that. Um, I think the 
biggest thing I'm looking forward to and challenge kind of meeting is making sure that I don't waste a minute of my time over here. Um, we don't know how long we're going to stay. Um, we have, we have an idea in our head, but that could go, we're not going to come back earlier, but it could go later, but I don't want to assume anything. And I just want to wake up each and every day with Kate and do a lot of meaningful work and be and and develop some real skills to maximize every time, every minute I'm having a conversation, every minute I'm working, every minute I'm taking a walk and try to do the best I can to be present and maximize those moments. I think those are, and that's a, with our supercomputers in our pocket, uh, those things are, it's not, it's easier said than done, right? Yeah, no, I, I hope you're, you guys are both able to soak it all in and enjoy every minute like you talked about. And it, it's so fun hearing about the, the new adventures, the new challenges, new tasks you're taking on. And you're someone I've looked up to for a while. And I really do appreciate the time you've given us today and also what you're accomplishing in the world. And I know we could just go on for a few hours. I, I've got one final question. If I came to Paris for the day, where are we going? What are we doing? Let's see, thinking about you, uh, if you have you been here before? Have not been to Paris. I've been to France. Oh, awesome! So you're getting off the plane at 9 a.m. We're going right to a cafe to catch up. Uh, the cafe culture is amazing here. You can spend a couple of dollars on an espresso and take an hour conversation, and you won't be asked once to leave. You can have prime real estate. They don't care. You can spend three dollars and stay there for the whole day if you want to. So you go right there because you're going to need some uh, caffeine off a red eye and do that then we're going to go to probably the musée d'orsay which is where all the impressionist paintings are um, the whole museum's amazing but there is the top uh portion which if you've ever seen you've probably seen that building it's the one with the huge clock in the front of it mm -hmm. um walk through that it is I, I love that impressionist world and you see those famous van goghs and and all that is that that's uh i think both my wife and i's favorite museum and then you get out and it's by the Seine River, walk down the Seine River, go under some crazy bridges, get to see the Louvre and, and all those things from the river, which is amazing. And then you turn a corner and you see the Eiffel Tower. And I don't care how many times I see that, that thing knocks me on my ass <laughs> every time. Um, I've heard different reports. I can't understand how anyone isn't just blown away by that thing. And it's something we've all seen since before we knew what it was. Um, and then, and then you try to go find a garden, which is my other favorite thing. Um, and just, you know, have a conversation. If you walk over there and you walk back, you're going to have walked six, seven miles. Um, so it's time for a bottle of wine, a baguette. You have to put all your dietary restrictions and all that stuff <laughs> <laughs> to the wayside. Cause you're going to have some cheese in your bread. If you're here for a day. And sit in one of the gardens. Paris does gardens and, and public spaces so well. Um, I love Luxembourg Gardens. Um, just sit there for a while, catch up, hang out, um, record a pod, do something like that. And then at night, I mean, it's it, there's so much history to the dining, but there's so many new, amazing restaurants. And um, if you come here, a few, I would say, are Clamato. Um, if you can get in there, Dursu is one of my favorite restaurants in the world. Um, and then if not, just go find a French bistro. It's not, uh, 
the best cooking in the world, but you're sitting out outside looking at the world go by in a Parisian cafe. And that, that's, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. That's a pretty picturesque day right there. And I, I hope we're there able to make, to, to make that one happen, man. Brett Hughes, a uh, true Renaissance man today. I really do appreciate <laughs> this. And I'm looking forward to recording another one of these for you, but uh, where can the listeners best stay connected with you? Um, right now, uh, you can Instagram is a lot of my travels, but, um, Every time I have a chance to do this, I could point you to the website I'm creating or anything like that. And I would say right now, the most important thing, if if you like anything I've said or, you know, you can reach out to me. That's the easiest way, maybe through Instagram or um, I, anymore. It's not that hard to it's not that hard to get a hold of me. Um, but just go to Lacrosse the Nations. You can see um, what we're doing and what the people who um, are working daily to do um, amazing work. Uh, are doing i would i would appreciate that even more than getting an extra uh double tap on one of my <laughs> pictures of paris <laughs> so that would be awesome and and sean thank you so much this is a conversation that i know both of us would love to have and um hopefully i can turn the mic on you one of these days soon because you know i feel like um hearing your pod hearing your podcast and hear the questions you ask you have uh you have a lot to say too you've got such an incredible way of looking at the world and, and the ability to pull it out of other people is really special. So I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you. And we'll make that happen. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.